Hello and welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Welcome to Podcast 21. I'm Dave Niven. And you can feedback on this podcast uh, through our iTunes, our Podfeed, or the website, obviously, socialworldpodcast.com. But you can also leave messages like Joe Godden just did on SpeakPipe, um, saying thanks very much for the interview with Lynn Romeo and working with Adult Social Works. Now, Joe, I know, is the professional officer at the British Association of Social Workers responsible for working with adults. And so uh, it's very good to hear someone like that feeding back to us. Hello, it's Joe Gordon here. I think the uh, social media thing that David's doing is, is great. It's good to have the opportunity to read some of these very interesting articles uh, and to uh, make a voice comment. Uh, I'm personally very interested in the article from the Chief Social Worker Adults I think there's an awful lot to do in social work with adults. That's where uh, are attempting to do what they can, but it needs the whole of the profession to work together to ensure that social work with adults is not relegated, as so often it can be, to the media frenzy over social work with children. Best wishes, Joe Godden, Baswer Professional Officer. Now, there's so much going on as we approach World Social Work Day next week. Um, we've got the Compass Jobs Fair in Birmingham, which is um, full of seminars and full of activities, and uh, I'm very pleased to be giving one myself on the uh, on social work in the digital age and looking at the kind of frontier sort of spirit of uh, service delivery. Then there's uh, the conference on the 4th of April. This is my childhood, there'll be no other, with a keynote speech from Dame Tessa Jowell uh, following the UNICEF uh, First 1001 Days of a Child's Life initiative and looking at the traumatic events that affect very young children and how we as professionals can best work with them to alleviate that trauma. And then at the end of uh, April in Bristol and southwest England, there's the British Association of Social Workers England Conference, at which I'm very pleased to have been asked to speak along with the Chief Social Worker for Adults and the Chief Social Worker for Children, among others. And at that one, I thought it would be a little bit provocative, and let's have a look at the way that social workers um, now have to uh, be clever in monitoring vulnerable people and so we're going to look at whether it's spying or just an extension of our protective services but today today i am delighted to bring to you uh, a good interview with david akansanya now david's a survivor david's a filmmaker david was uh, in care himself when he was young and it was a traumatic time for him. He came through it with the help of a very good social worker and many others, but uh, his story is inspiring. And David and his social worker then, Jenny Randall, who you've heard from before in this programme, actually uh, delivered training for us now and seminars on 
how to actually identify issues within the care system, how to work with young people in care, how to recognise mistakes, what not to do as much as what to do. And David's story and the films he's made since for all sorts of um, broadcasting networks, it's just, as I said, an inspiration. I very, very much recommend this interview to you and I hope you enjoy it. Right. Hello. Hi. Well, welcome to the program. Today, I'm interviewing David Akinsanya. Now, David's got an inspirational story to tell, um, apart from the fact that he's done so much in his life after having such a, effectively, a traumatic beginning. Welcome to the program, David. Morning, David. Nice to speak to you. Uh, we, I, you've done a lot of training. I know that. Working with, looked after young people. Uh, working with Jenny Randall, who's your good friend and ex-social worker, uh, that you formed a terrific training partnership with, apart from a deep friendship. But can you just tell us a little bit, David, about early days, uh, the young David, what happened to you? What sort of situation were you in and what were the circumstances that caused you to well, have an awful lot of difficulties at the beginning? Um, I, think my, I think my main problem was being born to an unmarried mother. Mm. Um, something that added to that was the fact that I was black. Um, my father had plans to make a career for himself and my mum was unable to take me home, um, you know, to her home village. So she left home, gave, gave birth to me, went back and got on with her life, put me into a private children, a private foster home, <clears throat> um, which she paid half and my dad paid half. And she went and got on with her life. And I was in this private children's home. Sounds posh, but it wasn't. Um, where I stayed for a couple of years before my mum stopped paying, and then I was taken into local authority care. Which when which decade are we talking about here, David? I wish I could say it was the seventies, but unfortunately, it was the sixties. So I was born in nineteen sixty-five. <laughs> so and, and you know, and in those days, David, it wasn't okay to have a. a have a mixed race child. It wasn't even okay to be an unmarried mother in those days. And a lot of children ended up in the care system to similar reasons for me, you know. Right. So you, here you were, essentially orphaned, if you like, if, if not physic, if not kind of um, legally, but certainly physically. Mm. And what sort of situation did you find yourself in? Well, to be honest with you, I always, <clears throat> I always say that I was really lucky. Um, because the first sort of 10 years of my childhood was spent in one particular residential establishment with um, one person in charge. Um, it was what they used to call the small family group home. Mm. And there were about eight, eight other children there. Um, I can remember deaf kids. I remember other mixed race kids. I remember an Indian girl. Um, I remember children who had been abused. Um, and you know, it was, it was to all intents and purposes, it wasn't a bad 10 years. I, you know, I had some behavioral problems. A lot of them were probably to do with what we would now talk about being abandonment and all those sorts of things. Um, I desperately wanted to have contact with my father. Didn't know much about my mother until I was about 14. Um, but I certainly had a kind of real keen interest in, in my dad. Um, in fact, probably too keen because he didn't show up most of the time and I spent a lot of time sitting around waiting for him. He did come from time to time, did he? He did come from time to time and I remember getting nice packages with, you know, jumpers and all sorts of things for Christmas. 
But of course, to little David, that didn't really take away from the fact that I did feel abandoned and I did feel like I didn't have anybody, you know, you know, I didn't have any family. So and a lot of the other kids did have family. But um, my dad lived quite far away and he did let me down a few times. And I think that had a big effect on me as a child. And your mum? Well, like I said, I didn't really have much interest in my mum because she had never been there. My dad had, had, had sort of teased me, if you like, by turning up every now and again. Um, I can remember going with him when he had a caravan. Um, so we must have gone on a little holiday. Um, but I had memories of my father. I had no memories of my mother. And I didn't really pay any interest in her until I was about 13 or 14, where I think my social worker had told me that a letter had come from her mother. Um, so, you know, through her mother, I did have some contact with her, but I didn't actually meet her until I was 27. Incredible. We'll come to that in a minute. Eh? So there you were then in this family group home, 10 years that were, okay, relatively speaking, um, not too unhappy. Can we put it like that? Yeah, you can definitely put it like that. I mean, you know, I quite often say to middle class people that actually it was quite an idyllic childhood because we went on day trips to London. I can remember going to, um, <clears throat> you know, Holiday on Ice, um, live at the Palladium. You know, we had, the local Fords used to take us out on lots of trips to Butlins and stuff. So it was, you know, it wasn't a bad childhood. It really wasn't a bad childhood. We were made to speak properly. We were well presented. Um, we were polite and, you know, it, was, it wasn't a bad childhood. I know it sounds, you know, you're in a children's home, it's bad. It wasn't that bad, that particular section. Okay. Then what changed? Um, what changed is, is that um, the woman who ran the establishment, her style of childcare went out of fashion. And um, a new area organiser wanted to make his mark. Lots of changes happened. Um, and Auntie Betty was asked to leave. And that's probably where things went slightly downhill for me. Okay. Do you want to say a bit about what, what that meant? Well, I mean, it was tantamount to taking away my mother. Um, you know, a lot of the other kids in the children's homes came and went. You know, they, they went home for weekends. Some of them left. Some of them went back to their parents. But I was always there. And... Um, you know, they effectively took away the most important person in my life, probably. And she was certainly the person who had the most influence over me and who could control me. And I did have behavioural problems. Um, um, and so when they took her away, everything seemed to collapse, really. She was quite strict. And then the new lot of people weren't strict. And, um, you know, things in the home became very relaxed. Um, and I'm not sure that I dealt very well with that. Um, I think at that particular point, I lost control of myself and started biting teachers and getting into lots of trouble at school and things like that. So you really went quite wild for a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, from what I remember, I was excluded from primary school just before, you know, a year before we were meant to finish. Um, and I think that was all the social workers and people around me thought that was a disaster. Um, and so I was then sent to a, 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 a big uh, school, with, you know, children's home with education, which was for maladjusted children, um, you know, sort of about 30, 40, 50 miles away from where I'd grown up. What age were you? I would have been 10, 11. Okay. Yeah. And, and what was that? Was that quite a shock to the system? It was a big shock to the system because I, before I went there, I'd worked out that all the kids who were really naughty in Basildon ended up there. 
Um, and it was it was a very scary place. There were a lot of kids there that had temper tantrums. There were kids there that had, well, I mean, a lot of kids there had anger management issues. Um, it was quite a scary place to be as a young boy. Um, you know, it, there, I, I learned how to rob telephone boxes and I learned how to take money off of school kids that were coming on, coming to the place for, because it was a seaside town. Mm-hmm. And so there'd be lots of kids coming there and we'd le- learned how to get money off them in the arcades and stuff. So we used to sort of hang around the arcades and basically mug these kids who'd come to Clacton on holiday. Okay. So, I mean, you were really, you could be, a, people probably would have called you a bit out of control. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely out of control. Um, definitely hanging around, you know, not, not deliberately hanging around with the wrong people, but put in a place where all the wrong people were. So, you know, you had no choice but to hang around with these people. And, you know, there were people from my hometown that I'd have been scared of, you know, a couple of years older than me, you know, f- you know that we knew who they were because they were the bad kids. So I just felt like I'd been put in with all the bad kids. Now, but I did, think, I did think there was something, I did think I was slightly brighter than a lot of them. A lot of them had problems with reading and writing, which I didn't have. Um, and there was a lot of remedial education going on there, which I think I was too bright for, really. But it wasn't all one-way traffic in that respect, was it? Because, I, I mean, my memory of talking to you, David, is that you had quite a bit of um, uh, nasty stuff done to you as well. It was uh, you, you, you were the victim on occasions as well, weren't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, um, I mean, you know, like in, in, uh, in one of the children's homes, you know, there'd been older boys, you know, messing about with us. And then, I mean, especially in the boarding school, there was so much nonsense going on there because it was a mixed school as well, boys and girls. And I think the teachers used to spend most of their time trying to stop the boys from getting to the girls. Um, but to be honest with you, there's a lot of things going on between the boys and the boys. So... It was one of those sort of situations. I think a lot of people who've been to boarding school, you know, when you're a teenager, early teenager, would have had very similar experiences. But some of them were very unwanted, yeah. What was your view of your future at that moment? Could you even begin to remember that? Um, well, I think, I think all of my childhood, I mean, I did have some positive people around me, don't get me wrong. But I, you know, when you grow up in care, you think that your life is over. You haven't got all the support network. I mean, this is me talking as an adult now, but as a child, I probably just thought, oh shit, I'm going to have a rubbish life. And I'd always believed that. I I always felt that as a child. And that would be reinforced by the odd miserable teacher or youth worker who'll say, you know, you'll never make anything of yourself, Akin Sanya. I mean, you know, I can hear that going over in my head from several different directions, Mm. from, you know, people who are supposed to be encouraging and, you know, promoting you or whatever. Um, it's not like being in a family where mum and dad have got ideas of what they want for your future. It is just you are a kid who has been abandoned and, you know, you're not going to make anything of your life. Look at you. You're in a maladjusted school. You know, you're already robbing phone boxes and doing bad things. So I didn't think I had a future, no. Okay. But you had a social worker, did you? I had a very good social worker. I mean, I'd had a couple of, um, I'd had a couple of social workers before, Jenny, who I don't, don't really remember. And I, I did have a few afterwards, but I think probably the most important thing about um, my relationship with Jenny was, was that she, you know, I was more than just a client. Do you know what I mean? I felt like more than just a client. So if I, I was quite often left in the children's home at weekends when a lot of people would go home or at Christmas or whatever. And, you know, Jenny would just ring up, you know, not, not during her working hours on a Saturday, knowing that I was there on my own and say, you, I'm going to do this today. Do you want to come? 
I mean, most of the time, the things she was going to do, I didn't really want to do. Um, but I, you know, I realized that, um, you know, it was good company and, you know, we did interesting things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So that began, well, obviously I know it's lasted as a sort of a lifetime bond, but with the two of you, mm. um, what other things were going on at that time in terms of help for you, if you like, you know, thinking back as an adult now, looking yeah. back as your time then. Well, no, I think, I, to be honest with you, David, I think it was more about containment. I don't think, you know, when I think of some of the things that they thought they were doing to help me, they were the things that actually harmed me. So, um, you know, somebody at some stage when I was sort of 15, nearly 16, thought it would be a good idea for me to go and live in a semi-independence unit. And it was the first one of its kind. It was a pilot project. Um, and we were put into a four-bedroom house on a really rough estate in Basildon um, and expected to look after ourselves. And, you know, a social worker might pop down a couple of times a week to see us to make sure we were okay. And we were left to our own resources. Now, what I will say to you is that I never missed a day of school. I went to school every day um, because I did, you know, by that time I was in contact with my father who was very much into education. And whatever influence he did have over me it was that I should try and stay in education as much as I could. So I went to school and I, I stayed on in sixth form, um, but I was living on my own. And, and at that stage, I was getting into a lot of trouble in the evening times and at weekends. And my, and my place was like a youth club. Because can you imagine, you're a 16-year-old kid and your mate's got his own four-bedroom house. You know, we didn't buy food. We, we bought you know, sort of the equivalent of pot noodles. I think they were in packets in those days. And biscuits and squash. That's what I spent my money on. Yeah. Occasionally, I'd do a stir fry, but not often. Bit of trouble with the law? A lot of trouble with the law. Um, I was, like I said, I'm quite proud of the fact that I did go to school. But in the evening times, my mates would come around. And, you know, as an adult, I understand these were all the ne'er-do-wells of the community. People whose parents would send them out to, buy, to nick petrol and a kid with ginger hair who everybody would have picked on if he hadn't have been in our gang. Another boy who stuttered. And so we were like a little gang and we just used to cause havoc. We used to break into shops and break into the swimming pool and go swimming in the middle of the night. Stealing cars was a big thing, um, taking and driving away. Um, and, you know, just lots. I mean, not anything that I'm particularly ashamed of, um, stuff that I regret, but, nothing, you know, just boy stuff. What, what would you do if you, were, if you were a kid who could do what he wanted? Do you know what I mean? It was that sort of stuff. And um, what consequences were there from that? Um, what kind of punishments came your way? Well, um, I, by the time I was 18... Uh, I left care. They caught. They caught me, and they got my fingerprints. And I was, uh, you know, I was involved in a lot of things. Plus, the old Bill wrote a lot of crimes off through catching us. Um, and we, I was sentenced to twelve months in uh, what was in those days Borstal Youth Custody, um, and that was a big shock to my system. Um, in, initially, I was in, um, I, I was in Blantyre House. Then I moved to Rochester for allocation. And luckily, I mean, really luckily, I was sent to a ball stall called Gaines Hall, which was an open ball stall. It was it was called the Eton of ball stalls at the time. It was, um, you know, it was where they sent the good kids, basically. And I I was lucky when I when I was there, I, I went out and talked to school kids. Um, I got involved in the education department. I got a good orderly job. And, 
you know, basically it was a good lesson to me. I, I, I you know, I, I never got into trouble after I came out after that 12 months, which I only did nine months. Mm. But, um, you know, it was a bit of a shock to the system. And I realized that I wasn't the same as a lot of the boys who were there with me. I did have I, I did have dreams. I did have things. I mean, I fantasized a lot as a child. And I think a lot of kids in care do this. Um, you know, I was involved in the local amateur dramatics club, uh, you know, drama theater group, you know, which a lot of the other kids I was hanging out with just thought I was a complete wanker for doing, um, you know, but the, I did have interests above what other kids, you know, a lot of the other kids who I was hanging out, I could read and write as well, which is one thing about being in Boston, a lot of them couldn't. Okay, so that was maybe you could say the beginning of the turnaround. Now, just before we get to that, mm. Jenny, Randall, social worker, still in the background? Yep. Yep. And still supporting you, and that helped, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on record as saying this. Um, you know, if I hadn't have had Jenny there, um, if I hadn't have had Auntie Betty there for the first 10 years, if I hadn't have had um, Jenny there, you know, afterwards, things would have been much different. You know, if she hadn't have visited me in prison and, you know, encouraged me to do voluntary work and tell me, you know, you know she did tell me quite often that I had something about me that, you know, I could make a success of my life. And also from about the age of about 13, she'd got me involved in the Who Cares movement. Um, and Who Cares magazine, which is now still running, you know, we set that up back in the day. You know, we set that up as a little local project with Westminster Social Services. And she got me involved in the National Children's Bureau, who used to do events to hear the views of kids in care. And basically, you know, that's what shaped what I do now. Right. Let's, let's get on to that because yeah. I, mean, I think it's important that people here also know what you've managed to achieve since then. Yeah. You talked about who cares, fine, children and young people's issues, you've got steeped in that. You're obviously <coughs> passionate about now talking about young people in the care system. You talked to various young people and looked after situations in all sorts of places, don't you? Local authorities yeah. also act as a mentor to many. Yeah. And you've won a number of awards for your mm -hmm. youth and community work. That's right. And you're an ambassador for the Princess Trust. Yeah. And, well, tell us about, actually, you've done a lot of journalism, that's fine, but you've also done a lot of filmmaking, which was is one of the threads running through your adult life, isn't it? So t can you tell us a bit about how that came about and what you've done? Well, I, I met, back in 1986, there was a conference being held in London, um, and it was called Blackening Care, and what they wanted to do was to get together black kids. It never been done before get together black kids and talk about some of the specific issues that affected black kids in care. We produced a report which gave people, which, you know, we wanted people to kind of think about kids' identity and stuff. And it was, you know, it was the beginning of that kind of drive, really. Um, and we produced a video. And I was in the video. We helped plan the video. Uh, we had poetry. We had people talking about their experiences. And it was at that point that I realised how powerful film was you know, to make people think about stuff that, you know, maybe they hadn't thought about before. And, and I got a real interest in the idea of being able to make films to, you know, I mean, I think I've always had a part of me um, which has been about justice. If you if, like a lot of the trouble I used to get into as a kid would be because I was fighting because I didn't think something was fair to some kid. Do you know what I mean? If, if I thought a member of staff wasn't being nice to a particular kid, I'd say something, you know, and I'm sure that used to annoy the social workers. And making this film and seeing people's response to it and the reaction to it, 
just made me realize what a powerful tool the media was. And so I just decided at that stage that I wanted to make films. I wanted to, um, to, to make films to help other people understand other people's lives. Um, and I applied to the BBC several times, didn't get in. And eventually I applied and I got a job working on the Kilroy programme, um, which was an audience discussion programme where, um, you know, people came in and sat around and talked about issues. And that, you know, was a perfect start for me. I worked on that and worked my way up. You know, I spent 25 years at the BBC. So I, I ended up being a producer, director, reporter and, you know, um, made a really successful career in, in television. I know, and the range of programmes that you've been involved with is quite startling, really, amongst not just the BBC, but Sky, Channel 4, and plenty of other programmes as well. Yeah. <laughs> now, but, but I think the thing is, David, what, what I was going to, just to bring it back to the kids in care thing, was that I got to a stage in my life where, um, you know, people were always telling me, oh, how surprised they were that I made it and I'd been in the care system. And that used to really make me a bit angry, and I thought that more kids, you know, more kids needed to know that you can do it. So I then went, you know, after spending a lot of time just working in television, making just television programs, I start, you know, once I got a bit more confident about having power, I started to make films about being in care. Um, and I made a couple of really personal films, two really personal films, um, you know, and, and that pushed me back towards, you know, the fact that I was in care. I was a person who'd grown up in care and I should try and use my position now to let other people know that actually you know, you can make it and, and, and to encourage people to, 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 to put a bit more effort in with kids in care, to be honest. Yeah, well, on a personal level, too, you actually mentor still quite a lot of young people, don't you? Oh, yeah. And all the time when I was working at the BBC, I ran a hostel for young single homeless people, which which had, you know, most of the people who lived there were ex-care. And in a way, I kind of treated it like my own little sort of adult children's home. You know, I, I you know, I kept the garden nice. I'd cook for some of the kids. I did a lot more than what a lot of the other caretakers did. Um, and I still had that contact, if you like, while I was still, you know, concentrating on my career. I always had that contact. We looked after children. I'd always, if a social worker phoned me and said, David, I need you to speak to this young man. He needs, you know, he needs to talk to someone. I would just do it. You know, I would see it. That is, what's the point of getting to where I've got to if I can't then go back and do something to help? See, that's the difference, I think, that I've noticed with you, David, because I've known you for a while now and I've heard you talk about things before. The, the, no, the difference, I think, with you is that you haven't tried to throw away your past. No. What you've done is you've used it and embraced it and learned from it and you, start, and you pass it on. Yeah. That, and, was, and, that was a conscious decision, wasn't it? It, I don't even think it's a conscious decision. I think it's something about what I learned from the people who did the best for me. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that, you know, I can't, you know, I, I don't have children. I don't have my own family. I don't have all those things which would take up an awful lot of my time. Um, and so I just, I just feel like I've created my own sort of family. We, you know, with Jenny above me helping me, you know, me helping people who I've met at work who've got mental health problems who need a bit of support, you know, and then, you know, right down to kids who are currently in care. And, you know, years ago, I started working with a boy called Marvin, who was 14 at the time. And, you know, social workers gave permission for him to come and stay at my house. And he just reminded me of me. And I just tried to do as much as I could to help him. And then once I'd done that, I kind of realized that I could do something a bit more significant, you know, not full-time fostering, but certainly mentoring and respite 
and supporting. You know, do you know what, David? Actually, just doing what I would have wanted done for myself, right. and what I did get done for myself. You know, some of the way. Well, let's, uh, but, can yeah. I just hold on to that for a second, David? Because that, that's something I really wanted to ask you before I forget. The the bit about I want to hear your advice. I want to hear what you would say to to young people, or crucially, the Jenny Randalls of this world who are looking after or looking out for young people who are in similar circumstances to you that you were in. What were the the ups, the downs, the pitfalls, the mistakes, and the triumphs? You know, could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think initially my 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 um, relationship with Jenny. Um, I, th- I think what happened was when she stopped being my social worker, she then realized that I didn't have anybody else who was going to kind of push me and be whatever. Um, and so she insisted on on keeping in touch. And, you know, that was quite dangerous for her because, you know, uh, you know, she is no longer my social worker. So, you know, I had a new social worker. Um, but I think she realized that she that I needed something more than that. And she insisted on being playing that role, and you know that that was difficult for her because she had to fight against a department which was, you know, not wanting that to happen. Um, but she she achieved it. She got status of she, she she maintained the status of being a social arm, and that was really important to me because the time when I really needed somebody was when I was in prison, when I was eighteen, when I was nineteen, when I was twenty. And you know that in those days, you know, you were cut off at eighteen. Yeah. So, you know, and my advice is, is that, you know, to young people, and I always say this to young people is find someone who cares about you. It might be an ex-girlfriend's mum who who liked you. It could be an ex-foster care. It could be a social worker. But, you know, find someone who's going to be on your side and who's going to walk along. I mean, not, you know, not um, it's walking alongside somebody rather than being. Sorry, it's walk alongside someone rather than pretending to be anything that you're, you know what I mean, yeah, that you're yeah. not. So like with a lot of the kids I work with, I, you know, I try and say to them, look, I want to be like a big brother. I'm not going to pretend to be a parent. Do you know what I mean? But I will, you know, play a role which is positive, And that's probably more like the, the, the nearest thing you could think about would be a big brother. And that's, you know, that's what I've done. And I've got, I'm proud to say I've probably got about. 30 kids over the years I've worked with but 10 of them who are really close and that I've you know that have stuck with me I've stuck with them they've needed me into adulthood and you know that's what that's what we need to be providing for these kids is a relationship is for them to understand you know that there's somebody out there for them rather than nobody because when there's nobody out there for you you can destroy yourself because you don't care about yourself you need other people to care about you and and that's what I always advise young people is that find someone who cares Find someone who can care for you appropriately. Do you know what I mean? Who can, you know, who you can turn to for help when you need to. Because we all need help. I mean, I, you know, I know people in their forties and fifties who still get help from family members and whatever. You know, moral support and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so here you are, uh, a little bit older now. Nearly fifty, mate. Nearly fifty, yeah. yeah. And um, trucking on and making great strides and doing different things and constantly telling your story, which I know personally has been very helpful to lots of people because obviously you and Jenny also have been very kind that you do training for David Niven Associates for our company. Yeah, and I, you know, and it's amazing, you know, that I, I, I don't know anywhere else where you would find 
you know, a professional social worker at the sort of back end of their career with someone who they've worked with for 40 years. I mean, I've known Jenny for 40 years. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, being able to, you know, go out and speak to people. And there have been, you know, there are things that me and Jenny disagree on. There are things that happened to me that she had to make decisions on, which, you know, now she might not make those decisions. Now I might not agree with those. You know what I mean? And, and you see that played out in front of your eyes. And I just think that's so um, rewarding for social workers. But I also want to, you know, I, I want our course you know, and what we do to tell social workers that actually relationships are so important. And, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, David, you know, social workers are made to feel like they shouldn't keep in touch with people, that they must cut them off, you know. And and I just, you know, I actually don't believe that that helps people. I think, you know, there are going to be a lot of kids in the system who really need genuine care. And I just think the system isn't set up for the, that these days. People change social workers too often. You know, um, foster placements break down too often. You know, but what I what I promote and what our course helps me to promote is the fact that everybody needs somebody, and and that is so important. Well, David, it's been as always a great pleasure listening to you. Um, I'm just going to mention one little thing. Perhaps your modesty didn't uh, allow you to mention that. Um, wasn't there a recent poll about the? Top 500 people of inspiring people in the country that you uh, Made I figured it. Yeah. In? Well, no, I, I was really chuffed. Um, <clears throat> a very short story. I knew that someone from Debrett's had been sniffing around asking questions about me. Debrett's is a very posh magazine, um, you know, for the posh people. And then all of a sudden, I got some phone calls saying that I'd appeared in the Sunday Times 500 top um, people for my charity and campaigning work. And I'm very proud of that. Because, um, you know, it's recognition for, I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff I do, I get paid for. A lot of the stuff I do, you wouldn't know about because I am, you know, helping boys who have just come out of prison and supporting people who have got who have become homeless. And it was just really nice to be included on that. And someone told me it's the, the pre-list to the OBE, so watch this space. Oh, wow, well, you never know. I mean, you even talked Elton John, I believe. There you go. <laughs> All right, David, listen, it's lovely talking to you as always. And for everybody listening, David and Jenny put on a brilliant course for either young people who've been looked after or the people who work with young people who've been looked after, whether it's statutory, voluntary, whatever. It's so well worth it. Get in touch through David Niven Associates. David, many thanks. Cheers, David. Oh, thanks very much, David. As I told you all, that was a real inspirational interview. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Um, I just want to say thanks. Uh, there's been a terrific response to last week's when I was a guest on um, Freelance Digital Mum uh, Faye's uh, podcast. So uh, hopefully we can do some more with Faye in the future. That was excellent. Also remember just. We're on Twitter, at Dave Niven. Tweet us, www.socialworldpodcast.com. Leave us your comments. iTunes, Podfeed, whatever. Leave us your reviews, please. We'd love to hear your opinions, your ideas. People you'd like us to interview in the future that are inspirational to you that I can hopefully bring you. Speakpipe's the way to do that sometimes, too. You've heard several people have already used this new facility of ours. Just one click beside the blogs and beside the podcasts. And you can leave your message with us.
But anyway, thanks very much for listening and see you next week.